Uh, when we think about it, and especially if we consider things from the perspective of a lot of people in the culture around us, what we're doing this morning is quite odd, isn't it? Quite foolish in some ways. It's a little bit in line with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, where he talks about people considering his message foolish and weak. Because what are we about to do now? Where we're going to sit down for roughly half an hour, maybe a little bit shorter if I'm not too long-winded, and we're going to give attention to a letter that was written by a guy who's been long dead about a bunch of people in a little town in Greece. How many people have been to Greece? A few, but there's not too many Greeks here, and not too many of us have been to this particular town. They weren't particularly famous people. Indeed, they were quite a muddled group of people. They were a misbehaving group of people. They needed correction and they needed realignment according to the message that they said they believed about God, but their behaviour didn't match up with it. So it's a little bit odd that here we are sitting, giving attention to what Paul, this guy, has written to this group of people. And particularly when you're sitting there mainly and there's one person talking. In modern communication, that is a minority situation. So in some ways, a lot of people might say to us this morning, what you're doing is a little bit odd or even a little bit foolish. Why don't you just chill out a little bit and go out and have coffee instead? Well, we can have both this morning. We can have coffee later. But let's stop and think about it for a moment. Because when I think about it, about my life, I'm often muddled and misbehaving just like these Corinthians to whom Paul was writing. Frequently, the way that I behave contradicts what I might profess to believe about God, like the Corinthians. And further, just chilling out and having coffee, as much as that might be good and important and fun sometimes, doesn't seem to bring about the changes in life, or in my life in particular, that I might long for. So perhaps I might benefit from listening to this letter, these four verses that we're going to look at today, written by Paul to this obscure bunch of people way back 2,000 years ago in the town of Corinth, this muddle-headed, misbehaving bunch of people. So let's dive in. But first I want to remind us of the context of what was read by Rhonda just a few minutes ago. Paul was writing to this small church, as I said, but it was a church divided. They weren't even all on the same page, as Brett's indicated over the last few weeks. Many of them also weren't just not on the same page, they were in conflict with each other. They despised Paul's message as foolish, unsophisticated, him as a very plain-speaking, non-professional speaker. And they were despising the godly wisdom that he was trying to give them and looking to their own human wisdom. They were relying upon the clever speaker rather than the God that Paul was announcing. Now Paul came and he summed it up in this little phrase because after saying all those things in chapters 1 and chapter 2, he said, the things that makes a person really spiritual is having the Spirit of God. And he sums it up at the end of chapter 2 in this verse that Brett shared with us last week when he says this, but we have the mind of Christ. He said you're divided, you're not uh, thinking rightly about wisdom. Uh, the Spirit of God helps change our life, 
Not everybody will listen to that. Indeed, the non-spiritual person won't get what we're talking about. But then he says to them, but you have the mind of Christ. Now, isn't that an enormously encouraging affirmation for them to hear or for us to hear this morning? But when we come to the first verse of chapter 3, there is, to my mind, an implied second but. In chapter 2, verse 16, he says, but we have the mind of Christ. But if you read under the subtext of chapter 3, verse 1, there's a hidden but there as well. He says, chapter uh, three, 2, verse 16, but we have the mind of Christ. And then he says almost, but I couldn't address you as spiritual people. A double but. The little Greek word that starts off chapter 3, verse 1, can be translated as it is in the New Testament, uh, in the NIV, uh, and I, and I could not address you as spiritual. Somebody else has translated it as for my part. But however we translate that one little four letter word, there is an implied but there. He's about to deliver some criticism and he says, You've got the mind of Christ, but. And whenever you hear somebody say a but, I think it's always important to listen up. Now he softens what he's about to say by saying brothers. It's a, fam f um, a family type word. And we shouldn't read it, he's just speaking to the blokes. It's really sisters and brothers, the family of God. He's saying He's softening what he's about to say. He's putting it in the context of love and affirmation and family. Nonetheless, he doesn't hold back in these next three verses. He says, you've got the mind of Christ, but there's something wrong here, he says, that needs correction. And in the next two or three verses, he doesn't hold back. Now, it's... Never easy, is it? Um, it's never easy either to receive critical feedback or to give it. I, even when we know and love the person who's giving it or whom we love when we give critical feedback. I remember a few years back that the leader of the team that I was working for at that point, I saw them do something and say something to somebody else on the team that was highly, well not highly, but it was it was not good leadership in my mind. It was unfair on this person. And I thought, I've got to say something. It took me some days to screw up my courage to say something to this guy that I deeply respected as, as my leader and said, I think what you did then was not quite right. He received it graciously. Uh, it, uh, it, was, it turned out well. It's hard to give negative feedback to somebody, isn't it? Even when we respect them and they respect us and they know our motives. But it's also hard to receive it. I remember many years ago, um, I was challenged by my, by my then youth leader as a, a, a young Christian when I was overwhelmed with a very difficult stage in my life and had been moping around in self-pity for some weeks. And finally, he said to me a line that I still remember. He said, Vivian, you've got to decide what's in charge of your life. Is it your emotions or is it Jesus? Now, he didn't say ignore your emotions. He didn't say don't be in touch in your emotions. He didn't say stuff your emotions down. That will not lead to maturity. But he did say, who's in charge in the end, Vivian? It was a rebuke that I needed at that stage. And this criticism of Paul is pretty strong here at this point. 
he uses four words. And let me see, I think I'm up to the right. I'm not quite sure there, Kathy. Go to the one that says spiritually, worldly, infants, and merely human. Um, he uses four words or phrases to describe the Corinthians in these next four verses. He says he could not deal with them as spiritual people. He says you've got the spirit. Spiritual people have uh, the spirit of God and they can understand that other people um, can't understand. But he said, I couldn't speak to you, even though you have the spirit, as if you were spiritual people. He says they were acting in worldly, literally the word is their fleshy ways. It's the word from which we get our uh, word sarcophagus. It, it literally means flesh. But he says you're acting in fleshly or worldly ways. He says thirdly that they were behaving like children. He said that they were acting like any other merely human person would, without God's spirit. Their actions didn't match up with their profession of faith. Now, I would have imagined that that was not easy for Paul to say to the Corinthians, nor easy for the Corinthians to hear that. It's never easy to hear that negative criticism, is it? Now, two of the words that Paul uses there are really close with each other. They both come from the word, that, that Greek word flesh. And I'm not going to give you a sort of a, a Greek lesson here, but it's important to understand this point. The only difference between these two words is one letter. You know, you've got to be careful sometimes about the words that you use. I was trying to think of an example in English where if you change one letter, the word meaning changes radically. Well, this, uh, in, in this word here, the word which is based on the word flesh, has got one letter difference between these two words. He says in, uh, in verse 4, um, I couldn't address you as spiritual but as worldly. There's the word. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. Now, we, in that translation, worldly and worldly are translated the same. But in the Greek, there's one letter difference between those two words. And the difference is making it tricky. The way that Paul uses these four words in the passage makes it tricky to really unpack what he's saying. I think we can get the general gist of it, but what's he exactly saying to these Corinthians here? Because I think that there are two ways, two ways of interpreting what Paul is saying here. Although they both have to do with the issue of maturity versus immaturity. Before I look at those two ways, let's think about what maturity is for a second. How would you define maturity? It would be great at the moment to sit around and talk with each other about how do we define human maturity. But maybe I could, do, I could, I could talk about it from my perspective by way of a simple illustration. When we moved into our house in 2021 in Yala Road, uh, I got a little tube stock gum tree. Okay, It was one of those that you can get with, as a freebie from the council. You know, when you get your rates, you get two free trees every year. We've just picked up ours for this year, actually. It's fantastic. I had a little tube stock, a uh, little gum tree that big in 2021. I've contacted some tree uh, loppers to come and prune that tree now, uh, which is about 10, 12 metres high. It needs to be cut back. How is that an Im image of maturity? Well, that tree has put down some deep roots. It's grown tall. It's solid. It doesn't flop about in the wind, although it sways in the wind, but it's, it's, it's fluid. It's strong, but it's fluid. For me, that's an image of what it is to be mature as a human being. 
We can be strong and big, but rigid. That's not maturity. We can not grow deep and, and, and we can deny emotions or we can only focus on our thinking and so forth. We're all different. But it's to have that strength and flexibility that enables us to go well through life. And Paul is talking here about maturity and immaturity to these Corinthian Christians. Now back to these two ways of interpreting what Paul is saying here. The first way is to understand that Paul is raising an issue of what we might say is spiritual developmental delay among the Corinthians. What do I mean? In this first interpretation, commentators see this as a matter of maturity or immaturity between, uh, in stages of faith and development. They see a subtle but important difference between those two words with one letter difference. That is, this is about Paul saying, these are young believers, I couldn't speak to you maturely then, I can't speak to you now, you need to grow a little bit. This is a developmental issue. Paul is complaining that the Corinthians are still stuck in an immature phase. As time has passed, they ought to be mature. If so, maybe more time and teaching will help. Other interpreters see this as about people who've got the spirit, who should be mature, and who in many ways have all the resources to be mature, and on some occasions indeed might be mature, but they lapse every now and again into immaturity, behaving in very human ways, moved by self-interest. The contrast in verse 1 between those who are infants, children, compared to chapter 2, verse 6, where he says people who are mature. So does Paul have in mind the image of children who just need to grow up a little bit or of adults who have some measure of maturity but who regress to being children? In my view, the second is the better way of taking this passage and in some ways it's the more challenging way for us as believers, particularly if we've been believers for a long time. What Paul is concerned about here is about people who are behaving immaturely not believers who are young in the faith and just need to grow a little bit. It was a case of people behaving in childish ways, even though they said they had the Spirit of God. And I think that is, what, that is I believe, what Paul is concerned about here. Not so much delayed development as a kind of infantile regression, if I can use that phrase. And doesn't that ring true for all of us on occasions? It certainly does for me. How often do I revert to childish or immature behaviour, especially when anxious or under pressure? A couple of weeks ago, I was responsible for doing something uh, for some other people, and I, had a and I was a little bit anxious about it, and I had some plans worked out as to how I'd do all this stuff. And at the last minute, stuff beyond my control happened, and all my plans went out the window at the last minute. I wasn't my best self that day. I think I said to Rhonda later on, I was not my best self that day. We got through the day. It was okay in the end, but I regressed somewhat in my maturity level at that point. And isn't this part of what Paul describes himself in Romans chapter 7? If you go and look up this passage later on, Romans 7, 14 to 20, where he says, I do these things that I don't understand why I do them. There are things that I don't want to do that I end up doing and things that I do want to do that I don't end up doing. And I don't understand why I do that, but thanks be to God, I've got help in Christ to change that. Partly, I think, that's what Paul is referring to here. This tendency for all of us 
even if we've been believers for a long time, to periodically, for various reasons, regress and behave like kids. Now, immature behaviour in children is okay. I expect my grandchildren to throw tantrums. I might not like it, but sometimes they do. Now, my grandkids, of course, don't throw any tantrums. They're perfect. Um, They're ideal. We expect children to be overcome by big emotions. We expect children to have fights with each other in unhelpful ways. And as frustrating as it is, we expect and accept tantrums in infants. But when adults behave that way, how destructive it is, as Paul points out here. So what does Paul say are the indicators of immaturity in this passage? What are the indicators? What are the lack of genuinely godly wisdom that shows up in these Corinthians at this point? Well, we've already met some of those things as Brett's unpacked chapters 1 and 2 for us in the last few weeks. Two such indicators of immaturity. First of all, if, to remind you, Paul talks about the Corinthians' propensity to value philosophical and rhetorical skill rather than the simple message of the gospel. Secondly, they were divided into factions. Some said, well, I follow Paul. Others say, I follow Apollos. Others say, I follow Christ. They were divided. They weren't all on the same page. They weren't following the one leader. But Paul, in this passage, adds a third indicator of their immaturity, their tendency to regress into these childish patterns of behavior. The groups were jealous and quarreling. They weren't just divided. They were jealous and ambitious and quarreling with each other. And there's nothing much more destructive in churches than when we as believers do that. When we quarrel and are jealous and want our way. They were squabbling like children, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 3. Paul said they're acting just like every other human being, but they claim to have been transformed by God. Now this is serious stuff. Paul's not just saying this is some petty little thing. If you go to Galatians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21, Paul says in those passages that these two behaviours, jealously and quarrelling, are a result of our fallen, sinful, essentially human nature, unredeemed by God. What's at the core of all these three indicators of maturity? Well, it seems to me it's what's on the right-hand side. Of, I think it's the right-hand. Yes, on the right-hand side of that slide. That's a picture of me when I was three. Um, no, it's not. Um, you know, we expect children to go through that phase of "I want it my way." I'm the centre of the universe. It's all about me. But at the heart of the Corinthians' problem was that on occasions they were behaving like that, and so jealousy and quarrelling broke out. The Corinthians were behaving childlessly, not maturely. And it threatened the survival of the church. And it threatens, tragically, the survival of churches today. It threatens the reputation of faith. So what do we do at this point? What do we do when we lapse into immaturity? What do we do? What do I do when I ought to behave like an adult and I behave less than that? When I begin to behave childlessly? seems to me that it's here that we move back to, or remember Paul's emphasis in the first, three chapter, first two chapters of the simple message of Jesus. There's no simple solution to this. 
But we've got to remember that we're forgiven by his death and resurrection, that we're on a journey to maturity, that we haven't arrived yet. There will be slip-ups. We're not perfect. It's here that we need to remember that we are to return to godly wisdom rather than simply human resources. It's here that we need to remember that we've got the mind of Christ but still desperately need the Spirit of God to be at work in us. Because maturity in Christ this side of eternity is not a fixed state that we attain, is it? It's a journey with many slips and missteps, lapses and progress. It's about transformation, not simply information. It's not about deep teaching that will mature us. You know, you hear people who say, well, I just want some deep, 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 deep teaching. Uh, deep teaching is all very well and good as long as it's transformational teaching, as long as it results in life change for us. Otherwise, it's just a matter of stuffing our head with more information. Maturity in Christ is about journeying through life's joys and tragedies with Jesus leading, the Spirit working in us, but doing it in community with other people who will honestly give us loving but honest feedback. And that's not easy. Now, it seems to me that at this point, it's useful to consider two dimensions of knowledge or wisdom that we need for this maturity journey. The first is found in Proverbs 1, verse 7, that Rhonda read for us just a few minutes ago. It's a verse that probably a lot of you have quoted uh, in your life, or maybe internalized in your life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the be- it's just the beginning. It's a journey. But unless we come to place our life under the hand and control of God, we haven't even begun to be really wise with life. Not everybody will agree with that. Some will say this God stuff is absolute nonsense and rubbish. But the experience of so many millions and billions of people through human history is that when we discover a relationship with God, we begin to have a great deal more wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So here's the challenge. Do we know the fear of the Lord in our life? Is he enthroned at the very centre of my existence? But there's a second lot of wisdom. There's a quote there from Aristotle. Knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. Are they opposed? They seem to be saying two different things, don't they? The fear of the Lord's the beginning of wisdom. And Aristotle, that Greek philosopher, a pagan philosopher, he's saying knowing yourself is the beginning of wisdom. Are they contradicting each other? I think not. Because it seems to me that it's only as we plumb the depths of ourselves emotionally and relationally, knowing our strengths and our weaknesses, our failures and our successes, our woundedness, the motivations that sometimes drive us, and the automatic responses that sometimes we have when things happen to us in life that we don't even think about, and suddenly we find ourselves doing things that we don't want to do or or acting in ways that we didn't expect. It's only as we know ourselves well that we can really grow. So how well do I know myself? How well do you know yourself? It's not just about navel-gazing. It's exploring who you are and the way that God has made you emotionally, mentally, relationally, intellectually, so that you can bring that to God and say, Lord, here's the stuff 
There's some of it you'll need to change, some of it you'll want to sharpen and deepen, some of it you'll want to remain the same. Lord, would you work on me? But if I don't know myself, how do I bring it to God? Because the reality is that without emotional maturity, we cannot be spiritually mature. We'll too easily lapse into infantile regressions. We'll behave in ways that we don't understand. There will be things that will trigger us and we don't know why. We may be driven by needs that were not met in our childhood, that we try to meet in unhealthy ways in our adulthood. We may be driven... We may be driven by things that we don't even understand ourselves. I should have put this on the slider, but I don't. Uh, have you heard of the Jahari window? It's like a four-pane window, and our life is divided into four sections. There's one part that's the public part that you know about yourself and everybody else can see as well. Some physical things, you know. Vivian Grice is a you've got funny-looking hair, and he's nearly six foot tall, and he weighs whatever he weighs, and so forth. Um, there's the stuff that you can see and that I can see. The stuff that I know about myself that I, that I keep hidden, nobody else sees it. The stuff that you know and can see in me that I might not be aware of. And then there's the stuff that nobody knows. I don't know about it. You can't see it, but God does. It's a very useful way of thinking about life. And maturity, it seems to me, as I understand the scriptures and uh, life experience, is about increasingly expanding the cube, uh, the part of the Jahari window that says what I know about myself and what others know about me and what God knows about me. So, maturity. It's impossible to be spiritually mature without being emotionally mature. And pastors are just as needful of this work as others. How often in church history and even in recent days have we been surprised by Christian leaders who seem to have it all together, who are leading these enormous churches, wonderful things. They're esteemed, great world speakers and so forth, very impacting people. And then all of a sudden, they have a disastrous collapse. We find that they've lived a double life or something like that, a moral failure or other things like that, only to unravel at a personal level. And I suspect that usually it's because they haven't done that hard work that the Spirit of God calls us to do, to know themselves and to bring that to God for maturing and healing and help. And in case that we think that all of any of us are, are immune from that, all of us are susceptible at different levels, aren't we? So, maturity. What in conclusion, then, do we do if we're serious about moving forward in this challenge that Paul gives us to be mature? If we don't want to stay as children, spiritually or, mature, or emotionally or humanly, what do we want to do if we want to avoid uh, the immature behaviours that often um, we're prone to? Now, there's a lot we could say here. Do we just need clever, deeper teaching with clever, smarter leaders? I suspect not. Do we just need to find the right gifted guru or leader in life to help us? Be it pastors or psychologists or counsellors. All of them are needed. But it's just about finding the right person to lead us. Is it just a matter of living long, a long life, to get maturity? 
I suspect not. There's no guarantee about that either, either living a long time for that matter or for being mature. We all know people, I'm sure, who've lived a long time, you think, man, he's still 18. What's the old, what's the old joke about the difference between men and insurance bonds? Insurance, insurance bonds mature, by the way. Um, well, bad joke, I'm never very good at telling jokes. Now, there's a lot we could say here, and I'm tempted to say a lot, but let me close just with three simple things. What do we do at this point? First of all, I think we need to be reminded to eagerly focus on Jesus. Eagerly focus on Jesus. That's what Paul's saying the Corinthians needed in chapters 1 and 2. We've got to focus on the simplicity of Christ as our ultimate leader. Don't idolise human leaders, no matter how great they are. Respect those worth respecting, but don't put them on too high a pedestal, because after all, they're just human too. Secondly, we are called a partner, as Brett reminded us so eloquently last week, we're called a partner with the Spirit of God to mature us. Pray for his transformational work in my life is what I need to do. There's, a, there's, a, um, there's something called cooperative religious coping. Cooperative religious coping is where, under the pressures of life, we can go to extremes. One way we'll go and say, I'm going to leave it all up to God. He's got it covered. We'll just leave it with him. I'm going to pray and leave it with God. The other end of the spectrum is to say, well, God's given me a brain. I can think this out. Um, I'll work it all out and, and try and solve this problem, even with God there in the picture. No, God's given me a brain. I've got resources. I'll work it out. The evidence is that the best way to cope with the ups and downs of life is what they call cooperative religious coping where we partner with God to pray our hearts out and to bring our best resources to the table. Don't go to extremes. Cooperative religious coping will help us to mature. Thirdly and intentionally, I think we need to engage in a community as Paul instructs his people to do, not with division and jealousy and quarrelling, but find a community of faith with others committed to growing into maturity who will give us honest feedback, both positive and negative sometimes. Paul here in this passage gives the Corinthians some pretty negative feedback, but he does it with love out of concern for them. Find that sort of community, whether it's a connect group or online or whatever way, but we need to be in those sorts of communities where in love people will speak to us and give us feedback about things that we don't even see within ourselves that might, just might need to be changed. One of the great blessings that, uh, that Ronnie and I have, and that many of you have at the moment, is uh, having grandchildren. And it's great, isn't it, seeing grandchildren grow up. And my experience is that uh, I seem to have more uh, time to observe my grandchildren growing. When I was a, a dad with three kids, you were just trying to, you know, survive work. And you didn't, I didn't, at least I was probably not so good at it, but I didn't easily observe the changes. But over time, you can see the changes as a grandparent. You can see them maturing and growing. The analogy for me is of God the Father in our church family as us, with us as children of God saying, I want you to grow. I want you to mature. Know yourself. Know me. Open up your life to the Spirit of God. Engage with others in a healthy way who will give you honest feedback. 
and you'll grow and less and less will you regress to infantile ways. May we be that sort of church. May we be that sort of community where committed to growth we grow, bring glory to God, transformation and help to other people and point people to Christ as a result. Let's pray together. Lord, we're going to sing a couple of songs in a minute uh, about you as the one who is the King of Kings, the, the Lord of Lords. And I pray that that might be a great reality in our life. I pray, Lord God, that you would mature us. Forgive us for when we lapse into immaturity so easily. Whether it's driven by anxiety or fear or uncertainty or lack of clarity or whatever it might be driven by, Lord, forgive us when we allow childish ways to take over and help us to get up on our feet again, claim the forgiveness of Christ, thrust away from jealousy and quarrelling and division and step up and move forward again. Help us to do that as a community of love and grace and acceptance but also a community that honestly shares with and helps us to mature. Go with us now as we sing and as we close our service in a few minutes' time. Help us to connect with each other afterwards. Bring glory to yourself through our lives this week, we ask. And help us to serve you with our whole heart, soul, mind and strength.